one. Welcome everyone to season one, episode one of 2021 to It's a Wrap with Rap. I am your host, Ron Rappaport. This podcast is going to feature extraordinary people who do special things to enrich our lives and people who have overcome major challenges and adversities in their lives to come out on top. Our guest today is Lois Wagner from Johannesburg, South Africa. She is an executive and business coach. She is a speaker and author and a survivor to thriver to freedom loving person. Lois suffered a brutal rape over 20 years ago in her Cape Town, South Africa office, resulting in her developing depression, uh, a bout of overeating and drinking, and she withdrew from all her previous leadership roles. She was betrayed by her business partner, leaving her basically unemployed and facing a backload of unpaid bills. Now, determined to find meaning in the midst of the horror, Lois began to write her book, Walking Without Skin, a journey of healing from fear to forgiveness to freedom, and to connect with women in similar situations. She writes letters, she lobbies those with influence, and she uses the media to focus on the rape crisis in South Africa. Lois needed to tell her story to put the trauma behind her. Her learning and growth can support others who have experienced the hurt, but have not yet found the healing and freedom that comes from forgiveness. Welcome, Lois. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Ronald, and it's great to be here. Well, we're, we're glad you could be here. Uh, I wanted to start out uh, with a little bit of a timeline. Can you tell our audience, uh, what was your life like prior to the attack? Well, how far back do you want me to go? <laughs> well, uh, Basically, you're, you know, when you were working, your work life and, and that type of thing. Okay, well, I was born and brought up in Johannesburg, uh, and I moved to Cape Town uh, when I was 40. And up until then, I had been in the marketing space, always marketing and some uh, management consulting. So when I moved to Cape Town, it was on a whim, <laughs> and I was doing some market research for a, for a client, and the client and I decided to go into business together, and we started a digital printing company, which in those days, uh, it was still very novel and new. People didn't even have color printers in those days. So I changed my life completely, not only moving uh, provinces within the country, but changing career completely. So, yeah, after a very good run in marketing, I was now in a whole new era, whole new life. That uh, sounds, it must have been exciting. Uh, now, I read uh, the account of the rape, and it was horrendous. Uh, after the attack, uh, tell us what, what negative effects took place in your life. Uh, I know you spiraled down. How, how did that affect your life? Well, you know, it was quite interesting because, you know, it happened in the days when rape, it was obviously way before the Me Too movement, and the topic of rape was never discussed in polite circles. Right. So no, nobody ever spoke about it. It was something that was just ignored, really. 
And so when it happened to me, I was so angry. It shouldn't happen to me. It shouldn't happen to anybody. But of course, it shouldn't happen to me. Right. <laughs> and so I was angry. Um, other than hurt and other other negative emotions, I think anger was one of the strongest emotions. And I wanted to change the world. So it was in South Africa at the time when we were moving uh, from apartheid to democracy. And so was that looking, was that back in the eighties? In the nineties. In the nineties, okay. Yeah. So they they were asking for submissions for a new constitution, and the the man who raped me was out on bail for rape. So I thought, no, 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 we've got to change the law. This is not acceptable. Why was this man out on the streets? And right. so I, I became an activist and I started lobbying very soon after the attack. Uh, and I led marches and I went public and I really made as much noise as I could. I lobbied wherever I could, got petitions going uh, because I was angry. So the, the initial reaction was not the depression. That came a bit later. The uh, because I was so actively involved in trying to change the world <laughs> that I right. didn't have time for self-reflection and, and, and self-pity. So that came later when, when sort of the rush of all the activity died down. That's when the depression hit. And, you know, I, uh, my partner then betrayed me and I lost the business. And uh, it was like, wow, now what, you know, who am I, what am I, I don't have a job, I don't have money, uh, so it was a pretty tough time, and I think that's when the depression really hit, uh, and I got very negative. Well, the partner that betrayed you, was was he a, uh, he or she a close friend, or, or just a kind of a business acquaintance type person? Well, he started off by being a, a client. That's how we met, because I was doing a re research for him. But we became very good friends during the two years that we had the business together. And I did trust him, and I did believe in, in him. And so it was quite a blow um, when, when he did this to me. Uh, as I said to him at the time, I said, you know, I've been raped twice. The first one was by a stranger and the second one was by somebody that I knew and loved and trusted. So it was worse. <laughs> it was actually worse than the physical attack um, because of the broken trust. Right, right. Uh, that, must, that must have been a horrible, horrible experience. Uh, it also led to some... Uh overeating and, and a drinking problem. And I guess you just withdrew. Is that, is that what happened? Yeah, basically I, um, <laughs> can you explain how people react when, when you, when you don't have the therapy and you don't have the treatment or the support? I mean, I had wonderful support from family and friends, right. but it wasn't, it wasn't professional support. And so yeah, it was uh, just partied and drank and, uh, sort of try to overcome the negative feelings by drinking. Right. Party. So it, it was it was uh, pretty much distracting yourself from from really the reality of what happened. Yeah, that, so, and, yeah. And 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 also what is so interesting is that because I was so public, everybody was saying to me how proud they were of me because I was so strong and so brave. I was going out there and I was so strong and I was so brave. I was so strong and I was so brave. 
And about two years later, one morning, I just couldn't get out of bed and uh, went to doctors and had scans and MRI scans and x-rays and what have you. And I was told I had to have a back operation, which I had, and it failed. So I had a second back operation and that failed. And I was bedridden for about six months. And it transpired that it was, it was all psychosomatic uh, because what happened was with me being weak and lying in bed, everybody was saying, oh, poor Lois, oh, shame, poor Lois, poor Lois. So I was getting, instead of being a strong, brave person, I was being this weak, pathetic person, and that's what I needed. And so why get better? Just stay in bed and let everybody fuss over you. So, wow. so yeah. that was that was quite a lesson when you realize that you've created your own problems, your own physical ailments is in your mind. Um, and that was when I really started healing at that point, when I realized how strong the mind is and how the mind can control your your behavior in your physical body. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I know uh, you can real, your mind can really uh, affect you, uh, just make you nervous. If, you know, you can have panic attacks, the whole, the whole thing, uh, if you don't, if, if you don't get it under control. So let me ask you, how long after the rape uh, did you start writing the book Walking Without Skin, and what prompted you to write it? Well, what prompted me was that sheer anger that this shouldn't happen. Um, and I started writing that very, that very night. Um, I, I just thought, I've got to get this out. I've got to get this story out. And uh, I started writing. I wrote it as a journal. Uh, and yeah, so the idea was I'm going to publish this book. I'm going to write my experience and get it out there. So from day one. Wow. From day one. Okay. Now, uh, you are a pro proponent of forgiveness. Uh, tell us what prompted you to determine uh, that forgiveness is the path toward freedom from pain. Well, it's happened almost by accident. <laughs> I'd left South Africa and I was living in the Middle East and I'd been away for a year. This was now 14 years after I was raped. The rapist had been given a 25-year prison sentence. And um, I was coming home for my first holiday. And in all those 14 years, I'd never made any or made any attempt to contact the, the authorities or find out what had happened to this guy. But for some reason, I contacted the authorities to find out his status. And they informed me that he was going to have his parole hearing on the 10th of September. And I was landing in the country on the 9th of September, which was such a coincidence. And in addition to that, the law had just changed a few months before, allowing victims, as they call them, of serious crime to attend parole hearings. And so it was just like, hey, there's a message here. <laughs> and so I decided to go to the parole hearing, much against the advice of family and friends. They said I shouldn't go. But I just said, no, everything's pointing to the fact that I should go. 
And uh, one friend of mine said, well, if you're going to go, you must forgive him. And I said, what? Don't be crazy. I'm not going to forgive this madman. But uh, it prompted me to do some research. So I Googled and read up on, on the topic. And I prepared this very long, laborious academic speech <laughs> based on something I'd found. And uh, I, I wrote it. I wrote the speech, never thinking I would ever use it. Anyway, I got to the parole hearing and um, I was the first person in South Africa to attend one of these parole hearings. And uh, I sat in the, the room facing the prisoner and they went through his rap sheet and went through all the legalities. Then they asked me if I had anything to say. So I said, yes, I do. And I pulled out my, my prepared speech and I read it. Right. And as I was reading it, I thought, Ah, this is a lot of rubbish. <laughs> I thought it's very academic. He's uh, English was not his first language, and he only had a grade six education. So I thought, well, he doesn't understand it. I don't understand it. Why right. am I doing this? But I finished reading it, and when I finished reading it, it was spontaneous. I, I put down the paper. I looked him in the eyes, and I just said to him, "I forgive you." And a little bit more than that, I think I said, I, I hand back responsibility to you and I forgive you completely and compassionately from my higher self to yours. And uh, as I said it, I meant it. It was, it was totally unexpected to have that level of knowing that I meant it. So you had a release uh, of freedom, so to speak. I mean, it, it just was purged out of you after you said that. It was. And, you know, it was so amazing as the authorities said to me, they would tell me in seven days if he got parole or not. And I just looked at them and I said, no, I don't want to know. It was such a release. I'd broken that bond so completely through the forgiveness that whatever happened to him now had absolutely nothing to do with me anymore. Um, and it was it was just instantaneous. I thought, wow, where did that come from? <laughs> and so right, I, right. I didn't walk out of that prison. I literally flew out of that prison completely free from the whole situation. So people that have gone through similar situations, they're bottled up with a lot of hatred, I would assume, right? Absolutely. And, and this, <laughs> this uh, forgiveness that you gave uh, just released it all out. And did your, did, did, did the attacker, did he say anything to you while, while you were at the parole hearing? Uh, did he, yes. did he speak to you? What, what, what did he say to you? He just said he was grateful. Um, he, he actually did say um, that he wanted me to forgive him. Um, and uh, he was grateful that I forgave him. So that was the only words, really, that we said. Okay. Now, uh, Lois, uh, please tell our audience out there who are facing uh, major adversities in their lives about how you talk about uh, developing resilience and grit and how that can help them overcome their fear uh, and move forward from uh, being a victim of circumstance to a survivor, to a thriver, uh, to ultimate freedom to enjoy their life again. 
Okay, so how I've developed, um, my, I've got a model, and how I've developed the model is that the first st stage is you that victim, and that's where you have all those negative emotions, the hate, the guilt, the blame, the depression, all those negative emotions. And to overcome that phase and move from victim to survivor, you need to have resilience. And resilience is, um, it, it's about trying to find meaning um, in your life again. So it's about having the courage, having the determination to face what has happened to you. And it requires courage and it requires creativity. You know, for me, um, I went into survivor mode very quickly because I was this activist. So I was being courageous and I was being creative with all my lobbying and marching through the streets and, and what have you. So, so um, uh, resilience is really finding a way back. And I, I always recommend that people write. I mean, writing just came to me because I was so angry. But writing is so therapeutic and talking is so therapeutic. So you don't have to be as public as I was. Um, but you need to talk to somebody. You need to talk to family, friends, a therapist, your dog, your cat, whoever. You need to actually talk because that's how you're going to start rebuilding your strength and getting yourself back online. Um, so you need to be enthusiastic about trying to find a way forward. And I've got lots of little tips and techniques to help you do that. But writing and speaking are the two for me, obvious things to do. And so you're coaching in South Africa and are you getting uh, clients that have gone through similar situations? Yeah. Using yes. the resilience so, and grit? Yeah. Yeah. So what, so what happens is, yeah, is people become a survivor and then the grit comes in where you now start focusing on a new reality. So you set some aspirations and some goals. So the, the resilience gets you back to some kind of normal functioning, whereas grit takes you forward to the next step. So I, I do probably spend more time with people on the grit elements, getting them to focus on, on future goals and aspirations and, and, and going forward, finding their passion, finding their purpose uh, and, and moving forward with, with perseverance and persistence. Now for our audience listening in, if there's someone out there that could use your services, uh, is this something that uh, you offer worldwide? It doesn't matter where they are. I mean, can they be in America? Can they be in South you know, this broadcast goes to South America. It goes all over the world. So, absolutely, you know. I I like to use visual. So I like because I like to see the person. So I like to use something like Zoom, but it can be done telephonically. Although I I, I really like to be able to see my see my clients. Sure. Uh, so yes, it's it's worldwide. Uh, we can do it in groups if people are, are happy to do it in groups. A lot of people are reluctant to work in groups because they don't want to share their story. But group, I don't want to use the word therapy, but group healing is very therapeutic because you realize that you're not alone, that other people are on similar journeys and you can learn from them and understand where you're at versus where other people are at. I also encourage people to know that each journey is unique. No two journeys are the same. 
And also that you go up and down that scale. It's not a linear journey. You don't go from victim to freedom. You might go, I mean, I became a survivor immediately, but I went back into victimhood when I stopped lobbying and I stopped being that activist. I fell back into being the victim. Yeah. And so you go backwards and forwards. And that's where group work is, is very good because people can see that other people are facing similar, similar challenges. Now, Lois, using, using your techniques, what has been your uh, success rate with, with people that you've counseled? Well, I, the, the biggest success is with forgiveness. Um, I've got a 12-step process that I take people, um, and that could be forgiveness of anything, not necessarily from something as traumatic as, as a sexual um, experience. Uh, it can be self-forgiveness. It can be forgiveness of somebody who's even deceased, a partner who's betrayed you. So the forgiveness is, is fantastic. And people find, find that it's very easy. I, I do tell them, I get them to understand that it's in, almost impossible to forgive while you're in victim mode. Because while you're in victim mode, you're still so full of the anger and the hatred and and all of those negative emotions how can you forgive but when you move into survivor and particularly into thriver mode then you're in a good place and then it's much easier to forgive so i don't force people to to forgive i don't encourage them even to forgive they've got to feel that they're ready to forgive so i often work with people who are at already at the, the thriver mode and they're just ready to get some help to forgive. And the success rate is phenomenal at that stage. Trying to work with somebody to forgive at victim mode, uh, 2% success rate. It's not going to happen. Yeah. They're just, yeah. they're just full of rage and hatred and, and it's quite understandable. Like you said, Absolutely. It's, it's a phase, uh, and also, it's important that you have those, those negative emotions. They're there for a reason. And you can't just say, I'm not angry. I'm not hate, full of hatred. I'm not depressed. It's real. Right. And so you have to acknowledge those feelings. And you've got to express those feelings. Yeah. So we don't just jump away and jump straight into the next level. You've got to work through those, those emotions. Yeah. You have to get that catharsis out. Definitely. Uh, moving on. So I did a little research and found out that for our audience, that uh, South Africa is said to be one of the rape capitals of the world. Uh, the rate of sexual violence is among the highest in the world, according to uh, travelstate.gov, which is from South Africa and the U.S. Department of State. Now, you talk about masculine toxicity. Uh, but do make it very clear that most men do not commit rape. Uh, you have a program that you devised, and it's called BRAVE, B-R-A-V-E. Uh, please tell us about BRAVE and how your efforts to eradicate what you call gender-based violence is progressing through your lobbying efforts and your media presentations and everything else you do. Right. So BRAVE, you know, 
I've been working with people to overcome their trauma. And then I suddenly thought, why the heck are we trying to overcome trauma? We should stop the trauma happening in the first place. And so I was looking at ways that we can do that. And I just realized that it starts in the home. It starts from childhood. We've got to teach our, our children. And it's not only aimed at boys and men. It's aimed at girls and women as well that we've got to teach our children to have the right values and the right ethics. And, and I've, I decided to, to use the acronym BRAVE to describe it. So in, in order to eradicate or to stop um, sexual-based violence, harassment, uh, we, we need to be brave. We need to have have boundaries. We need to know our own boundaries. We need to know the boundaries of our partners. We need to understand the boundaries of the people around us. And we need to be able to respect. So the R is respect. So it's not only respect the boundaries, it's respecting the values, it's respecting whatever the other people are wanting. The A is for agreement, get consent. Um, and it's, it's so important that it's not only the verbal consent, it's the enthusiastic yes. It's not the, 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 the enthusiastic no. <laughs> it's it's got to be yes, I want to do this. And so it's important that we get people to understand what consent actually is, not only in words, but in body language as well. And then the V is for values. Uh, you know, we've got those values that we are indoctrinated with from children. Uh, but as you grow up, you develop your own values. So it's self-awareness. So many of us really don't know what, what's important to us. So we need to understand our values. And then we need to be able to vulner vulnerably share those values with our partners, with our circle, with our communities. And, and make sure that you, you, you spend time with people with same values as you. Uh, in, that, in that way, you all go together forward positively. And then the E is for equality and empowerment, that we want to empower everybody to make the right decisions and that everybody's equal regardless of whatever. It doesn't mean they're equal uh, it's important we understand that it's equal opportunity, not necessarily equal outcome. So uh, equality is very important. Now, this BRAVE program, is this something that uh, you get uh, referrals of people? To, uh, is it an actual class that you have or is it is it just a concept or have you actually uh counseled uh, men or, or women uh, on this? Well, I've, I'm aiming it predominantly at teenagers. Um, so I'm working through schools, although with COVID it's been very difficult because they're all trying to yeah. catch up with their curriculums and what have you. So I haven't done as much as I would like. But um, uh, it's, it is for anybody, but I think if I could start with the teenagers, um, and get them to understand it and to start living those values, uh, we, we will start making positive inroads. So, you know, it's going to be difficult to change the older generation who are setting their ways. So let's catch them while they're young and let's get indoctrinate these values into them while they're still flexible enough. 
Right, right. So it's it's designed it's designed as an eight week program, uh, which is basically one and a half hours a week with some uh, uh, tasks that they have to do, but before the next one. So they meet one and a half hours every week for eight weeks to get through the program. Again, it's flexible. I can adapt it to the needs of the of the people who want to participate. The people, what kind of, uh, what type of people actually participate in this? Are, do you actually get uh, some teenagers who have uh, committed some offenses or is it just something that you're going to just get, you know, regular boys and girls involved? Regular boys and girls. If I could get people who've committed something in, that would be, that would be first prize. But um, it's just aimed at it's aimed at everybody, at all those kids out there. It's aimed at them. Let's teach you what is right, what is wrong, and what difference can you make? You know, uh, bystanders. You, you you witness somebody doing something. What do you do about it? Do you do something about it? Do you respond? Do you intervene? Should you intervene? Can you intervene? So we discuss all of those things. Um, if your buddy's sending nasty text to girls do you stop him how do you stop him what do you say to him so um, I had one one class where this young lad was very um, determined <laughs> to stop his friends from sending nasty messages and I thought that's fantastic but he was alone it was a room it was a room full of girls and one boy <laughs> and I thought that's fantastic but I just wonder, he goes back to the school and he says to his mate, hey, don't do that. And his mate turns around and says, stop being a sissy. <laughs> and yeah. then he's going to say, okay, I'd rather the peer pressure is going to you know, cause him not to take it further. So we've got to get groups to do it so that they support each other and encourage each other. Um, the individual is not going to work because peer pressure will uh, hijack the whole process. You know, not that I want to give you uh, more work because I'm sure you have enough. But uh, yeah, I was just thinking if you could uh, contact maybe some juvenile correctional facilities there. Uh, yeah, that would be that would be a great program because you'd have a what they call a captured audience to, you know, participate in it. So just, that's just a thought on my part. A real a real captured audience. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So, Lois, let me ask you, where can our audience uh, contact you? Uh, and I can put the contact uh, links into the uh, program notes as well. But if somebody wants to contact you, how do they contact you? It's very easy. Walking without skin. If you Google it, you'll find me. Walkingwithoutskin.com is my web. I've also got a Facebook page by that name. So you'll find me at Walking Without Skin. Okay. And just curious, but how did you come up with that title? <laughs> well, uh, it's, it's interesting. I always ask people what they think of the title and they invariably, they do get it correct. Um, it's about just being vulnerable. You know, your skin is what protects you. It keeps you safe. It keeps you warm. It's, it's your, it's your covering. And when you don't have skin, you're exposed to the world. So um, I've been very open. I've discussed all the 
gory details and I'm very vulnerable. And so I walk with art skin. Oh, yes. A very apropos title. Lois, I'm so happy uh, for you uh, that you uh, pulled yourself out of that dark hole and that you are sharing your story and doing something positive to make everyone's lives better. Uh, thank you for being a guest on my podcast. I will include your contact information and the links uh, in the program notes. And thanks everyone for listening and stay safe. And for now, it's a wrap.